new series called Forever Young, and? That's why I'm here. <laughs> and anytime it has anything to do with something goofy or young, they're like, uh, Ryan. you, you, yeah. That's basically my nickname right there. Uh, yeah. Except I think when it comes true. to hair loss and weight. Well, but, we won't talk. That's the next series. Yes. We'll okay. Have, okay. Yes. <laughs> But you are right in the sense that when we think of young, we think of Ryan Bieber because um, you've been giving your life to kids since you were, what, 19 years old? Yeah, my, my wife and I have been married for 20 years, and a few years before that, we, I stumbled into youth ministry. Mm -hmm. I, How'd that happen? I, I grew up in Long Beach. I was at a beach with my friends one weekend. I'm like, what are we doing this weekend, guys? And they were all volunteering in a youth group, and they said, we're going to water ski camp. And I was like, who water skis? Even back then, water <laughs> no skiing was like... No offense to you water yeah. skiers. And you'd be like, I, I, we're one foot water, and whatever it is. Point is, <laughs> I was like, so you're going to go to the river? You're going to hang out? I'm like, I, I like kids. I could, I could go and help. And so... I, they let me go. They didn't do like background checks or anything, which was a bad move on their part. We do now. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, we absolutely do now. Um, but I went. I had a blast. I remember the guy driving me. He goes, so why do you want to volunteer in youth ministry? I was like, oh, it's, it's like an ongoing thing now. Okay. So I kind of, he, he reeled me in, which is a good trick job. I, I, good I've, job. I've learned since then. Yes. But, um, but we, we, and I, I just kind of stumbled into youth ministry and it truly, I, I'm not, this is not in any way, shape or form hyperbole. It, it changed my uh, Christian journey. As a young kid, I grew up going to church. My dad was, was raised in Africa as a missionary kid. He came back here. I became a pastor. Um, we grew up in the church. I can remember hiding in the back of my grandpa's pickup truck one week because I just did not want to be in church. Yeah. It was so boring. Um, but, but for me, Christianity was, was about not doing bad things, and it was as lifeless as that sounds. And so um, for me, I just kind of tolerated Christianity until I started volunteering with kids. I started playing with kids. I started having conversations with kids. I started, it was this weird thing where I realized, oh, I'm like, when you, when you're loving people, there's life to this. Yeah. And, yep. and it became something that I could not do without. When my wife and I moved out here, um, I remember this is not great, uh, husbanding or whatever, but we, <laughs> first couple Sundays I played golf mm -hmm. and I said, my wife went to check out churches. I said, whatever, as long as I can be a part of the youth group, I'm there. And, and that's what I've been doing ever since then, and it's been the greatest thing ever. But nice. you yes. are like the godfather of, of youth ministry <laughs> in this valley. I cannot tell you the amount of times people are like, oh, Scott was my youth pastor. So we do talk about the day, which is pretty good. We had a great time, and Steve Solomon as well. So Steve Solomon and I both were in youth ministry around here for 20 years or something like that. You came a little bit later than that, but you had a whole scene going on as well. So it's been kind of fun. If you add up all of yeah. the years that this staff has been in youth ministry, it's got to clear 100. It's, it's easily, easily that. It's close to that with, with just a handful just of Just you and me. Yeah. <laughs> We're halfway there. We're we halfway are. there. We have, I think we counted 55 or 56 years together in, in youth ministry uh, you know, combined. But you got kind of manipulated into youth ministry. I got bribed into youth yeah. ministry. So I had actually a pretty good youth experience here at Rancho. Actually, I've only been to this church my entire life. And uh, I was heading out of here to go to the city. This was a podunk, hillbilly deal. Oh, yeah. I was going to UC uh, Irvine, architecture, commercial architecture and development was my thing. I just wanted to be in a room by myself, designing buildings, making a lot of money. And uh, so they asked me when I was 17, no background checks and a minor, would you supervise <laughs> our, uh, sure. our middle school yeah. students? And I said, absolutely never will I do that. And they said, we'll pay you $200 a month. I said, I Whoa, am in, that's let's amazing. do it. The Lord has spoken. Yes. Back then, Jack in the Box tacos <laughs> were three for 99 cents, right? Exactly, that's true. Yeah. Uh, so, but I said, only for the summer that I'm out of here. And I got addicted to working with youth. I had you know, a little bit of a troubled home, and we had this handful of kids. started with a dozen kids, and they all seemed to have their own troubles that I could kind of relate with, and I, I helped them out a little bit. And it felt good to, to help out these kids through some seasons in their life. And I thought, okay, I could do school and do youth, and did that forever, and uh, I have never looked back. 
when they offered me the senior pastor position in 2005, I said, I will only do this if I can still work with youth. They say, well, we have a school, so you got kids uh, all over the place. And I said, okay, that's fantastic. So I consider myself to have worked with youth since I was 17 to this very day. I got a random question. I, I, I don't even, I have no idea how this is going to go, but j- just show of hands, how many of you were in Scott's youth group oh, gosh. back in the day? Yeah, we got, we got some people there. here. Okay, nice. very cool. Not as many as I expected because yeah. I'm telling you when I say everywhere, everywhere, I it come happens across it. for sure. But yeah. we had a great time uh, back then. But really, that life in in youth and young people, uh, what, it was fantastic. And it's frankly kind of uh, addicting. Oh yeah, because that's where a lot of the action is, right? These kids, um, they well, they look up to you oh, yeah. when you're when you're young. In fact, Steve Solomon often says, kids um, gravitate towards the oldest person in the room that takes them seriously. Absolutely. That, and I think that's pretty cool. So in your, your years of experience, what, what would you say, I guess specifically with youth, what would you say it is that they're looking for? Like, what it, what, like when, it talks about, when you talk about pouring into them, what is it, yeah. you're, what is it you have to offer essentially? Or well, how I, you I think about just presence is a big deal. So if they gravitate toward the oldest person in the room that takes them seriously, to me what youth and children want is to be noticed um, and to be, I guess, just treated as, as someone who's valuable, right? Not just pushed aside, kids' table, kids' area, and hey, let the adults do their thing. When adults are in, in the room and taking kids seriously and valuing them, valuing that they exist, noticing they exist, uh, being involved with them where they are, which is sometimes on the ground playing games. And that's one of the things I love about you and your crew over there. I walked in on Wednesday night and just a ton of adults having fun with the biggest smiles on their face playing dodgeball with kids. With little kids, it truly is. Uh, you know, I... I for years, I would sit in meetings. I don't, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I would sit in meetings here and they talk about children's ministry stuff and I would like bite my tongue because I had thoughts, I had ideas. I had, and I was like, this, we could do this and you could do that. Yeah. But I was, just, I was teaching adults. I was very serious yes. and very grown up yes. at that point. And, uh, <laughs> and I just remember thinking, but, but uh, that kind of that changed for me. And one day you yes. said, would you want to do this? And, and I just started thinking, I'm like, realistically, for years you've been like jonesing to do this. You've yeah. been jonesing. And, and it is essentially that. It is, it is playing with kids. It is, and for me, that means throwing dodgeballs, and that means you know running around a room. For other people, that means uh, building Legos with them or drawing with them and just saying wow and just making them feel loved. And with little kids, it can be so incredibly easy, um, but it means so, so much to oh, yeah. them. It, it truly, one of the greatest parts of my job is when I walk into that elementary campus and just kids run up to you yeah. to give you hugs. And it's like, this is, this is what I get to do for a living? <laughs> Bring this much joy to kids? And, and like you said, with the older kids, it, it's, it's not as easy. Yeah. You know, you, there's, there's, there's more of a, of a trust earning that right. you have to do. I, you know, for me, my big saying that, I, that changed my youth ministry career was uh, I went to a Young Life camp with a youth group. And one of the things that they said over and over was, as leaders, we have to earn the right to be heard. And, and that takes time with, with kind of sometimes understandably jaded teenage kids. They, they, they don't believe that you're there for the right reasons sometimes. Yeah. And, and if you're willing to, to put in the work and earn the right to be heard, it truly can be one of the most um, rewarding experiences in the sense that, you know, I have people, I told you I had an email from someone out of the blue who who I was their youth pastor 10, 15 years ago, and they just wanted to say thank you. And I was like, I remember responding, thank you so much for this email, because it means the world to know that you, and now I I have a a family who have four kids in our children's ministry that they were in my first youth group. And I'm like, this is awesome. (laughs) Amber, is that Amber? Amber! What's happening? Sorry. (laughs) That's really cool. That's that generational thing. You take the next generation seriously. But as you mentioned, as kids get older, now they're, they're, they're heading into adulthood. Their brains are starting to think more complex thoughts. They're having more complex experiences in life, more complex emotions. And so as they get older, um, you kind of transition a little bit uh, to a, a, a conversation 
where they matter, their thoughts matter, their opinions matter, their thinking about God matters, their engagement with culture matters. So it's not just older people kind of telling young people what to think. It's not older people telling young people what to do, but it's really valuing them and then having them shape this world. I'll tell you, I, I could spend a lot of time on this, I won't. But how our youth groups over the years have shaped this church. We would not be doing anything that we're doing now if it wasn't for youth groups saying, hey, I think music can look like this. I think stage can look like this. I think teams can look like this. And our, our church has been shaped more by youth group influencing up than older people influencing down. And I hope it stays that way forever. I, I do think that keeps the freshness. I think, I think yeah. that there's, if we're not, I mean, we all know that if, if, if it wasn't for new ideas, we'd all get stuck in rut after right. rut after rut. And there's different ways to, to do this. Yeah. And there's different ways to do a lot of what we do. But my question for you is this, as a, as a church, what, is, what does Forever Young look like in a church? What does that actually practically play this, out to? I'm looking forward to this next four weeks. We don't have it fully planned, so I'm... I'm going to be pleasantly surprised. That sounds like something a young person would do. <laughs> pleasantly surprised. That's, that's true. <laughs> we'll just press that, foot and that is true. think. Yeah, that's, that's, my, that's my daily well, life. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. I can tell you from experience that's your daily life. It's tons of fun. Yeah. But this series, I think, is going to kind of shape itself as well. And we're going to hear from young people. We're going to hear from old people because this isn't really about age. This is about a mentality. It's about a way of thinking that says we want to stay youthful And I'm telling you, churches can be the most old-feeling, crotchety, stale things on earth. It can happen. So for a church to be committed to being youthful, not to just pour into the next generation, but to be youthful, to be energetic, to be relationship-based, confident, and optimistic, that kind of youthful energy that all generations can participate in. That's what we'll be talking about the next four weeks. Absolutely. And I just, I'm going to shamelessly... Do Without it. apology, just say just that if you, if you are someone who, who you miss some of those childhood, I mean, if the idea of playing games with kids, the idea of being a part of just kind of like, I, I tell you, one of the coolest things for me about being, a, being involved in children's ministry is that it does remind me to find joy in the simple things. If, if, you, if that is at all appealing to you, will you please, please talk to me? We, we absolutely need volunteers. We need people that can go in there. And, and if you're not loud and goofy like me, there are kids in there that are not loud and goofy that need someone like you <laughs> to connect with. We need adults. We need young adults, people that can go in there and just look to, to say wow to a kid and just to, to just share some kindness and some time and some love with these kids. So yeah. please email me, ryan.beaver at rancher.tv. We would love to get you plugged in. Thanks, sir. Thank Appreciate you. it very much. Appreciate it. All right. <clears throat> Ryan and his crew over there are absolutely amazing. And what they're doing with kids, just showing them the love and grace of God uh, in a very tangible way, a personal way, is just absolutely fantastic. Church is designed to be multi-generational. Church is designed to be passed on because it's not just about a religious ceremony. This isn't just about, oh, the faith of my grandparents is is now the faith of my parents, is now the faith of my family, which is gonna be the faith of, of my kids and their kids. It's not just about passing on a religious tradition. It's about embracing and living on mission, a powerful, exciting, energetic, confident, optimistic mission. And I'm going to show you what that mission is. This is a multi-generational mission. It's a multicultural mission. And it's a mission that, that God has revealed to us in his word and through Jesus Christ for thousands of years. And we all get to be a part of it. Here it is. The mission of God is that all people, all people, can be united with God and united with one another by God's grace through Jesus Christ now and forever. That's the mission of God. 
If you were to read your Bible cover to cover, you'll see at the very beginning God's heart for all people, all nations, all tribes, all generations. And then you see how this mission of uniting all people with God and uniting all of humanity with each other, how that happens. It doesn't happen through religious tradition. It happens in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It happens by his grace through Jesus Christ. And so we see this mission. It's powerful. It's compelling. It's what God calls salvation. Uniting the whole world with God by grace, uniting the whole world with each other by grace. That's God's vision of salvation. In order for that vision to become a movement, it has to be passed down to the next generation. It's been said that any movement is one generation away from extinction. And we can understand that, right? It's like links of a chain. Every generation is like a link of a chain. If one generation does not embrace God's mission to unite the world with him by grace and unite the world with each other by grace, if one generation falls short of that, the whole chain is broken and the movement is lost. And that's a big deal to think that God is gonna put his mission in the hands of us. And that means we have to pass this mission on to the next generation. It has to be this powerful, energetic, youthful movement. And we see from the very beginning in God's word, God's heart to pass this on to the next generation. Genesis 18, 19, God says to Abraham, the first time God gave the promise to a human being was to Abraham. And he says, through you, all nations will be blessed through this promise. The entire world is going to be blessed, but here's how it's going to happen. Abraham will direct his children and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then I will do for Abraham all that I have promised. God was very clear from the very beginning. Abraham, you're carrying this promise that I will bless the entire world, but it's going to happen when you pass this on generation upon generation. Deuteronomy 6. Here we see God giving the law, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch. This is the civil code that God gave to this brand new nation, Israel, so that they would prosper. And God says to Israel, this brand new nation with this, this code of, of laws, says you're going to be successful if these laws get passed on to generations. It says you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. And you must commit yourself wholeheartedly to these commands that I'm giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. These laws are going to keep you civil. These laws are going to keep you prosperous. Unless you fail to pass them on to your kids, then the whole thing falls apart. My favorite passage in all the scripture about passing on the things of God to the next generation is in Psalm 78, four through seven. The psalmist is given this impassioned plea to make sure the things of God, the mission of God, the heart of God gets passed on generation upon generation. He says, we will not hide the truth from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty works. Teach the children so that the next generation might know them. Even the children not yet born, they will in turn teach their own children. So each generation should set its hope anew on God, not forgetting his glorious miracles and obeying his commands. Don't you love the energy behind that? It's first a call to old folks, right? Uh, like me, to, to set our hope anew on God, to have a fresh vision of our relationship with God, to be passionate about our, our relationship with God, to be passionate about his mission, what he wants to accomplish on this earth. And then when we have this fresh vision of walking with God, then we pass it on to our kids. And as the Psalm says, to five generations, this Psalm lists five generations. And that was written 1500 years ago. No, 2,500 years ago. Do we have a five generation vision 
of our own faith and of our own mission? Are we so uh, excited about the mission that we have to unite the world to God by grace and to unite the world with each other by grace? Are we so excited about how we can play that out in our own lives that we have a five-generation vision of our children, their children's children, children's children, children's children? For a lot of us, we've kind of lost that idea that, that this vision can be powerfully at work five generations in the future. Maybe we need to evaluate, do we have a fresh vision? Are we forever young and are thinking about God, are thinking about his mission and how we get to carry that forward in our own lives? When we talk about forever young, I want to be clear and we'll be clear every single week. We are not talking about age. I'll tell you, this has nothing to do with age. Yeah, we want to pour these things into our younger generations, but when we say forever young, we're not talking about age. We're talking about a confident, energetic, positive, welcoming, freeing, and fun way of thinking about God and his mission on earth. That's what it means to be forever young. It's in the spirit. It's in our minds. It's in our hearts. It's who we are. I'm telling you, some of the youngest people I know are in their 80s and their 90s. And we're going to tell their stories over these coming weeks. I've got several friends of mine in their 80s and in their 90s, and they are not self-absorbed. They're not just, you know, waving their sticks at the world, right? They're excited about the mission of God. They're excited about playing that out in their own lives, and they're excited about making sure the younger generation knows about it, that the younger generation is, is prioritized, that our children and our youth get what they need to pass this mission on. And I'll also tell you on the other side of that coin, some of the oldest people I know are in their 20s and 30s, and that is sad. I'm, I, the most crotchety old men and women are in their 20s and 30s, and they're just grumpy, and they're complaining, and they're judging, and they're just like, come on, get some life in your dead bones. Let's go, right? So Forever Young is not about an age. It's about a state of mind. It's about a way of thinking, because Jesus himself called his way of thinking new, ended up being called the new covenant, right? There's this whole new way of approaching God, a new way of relating with God, a new way of relating with this world, and then to have a vision ahead of an exciting future that we get to shape. Jesus called that new, but he was born and raised in an old, dead culture. He was born and raised in this old covenant. And what the old covenant meant is a very stale understanding of our relationship with God. Uh, thinking that God is a judge and all he wants is obedience. That's all they thought about. God is judge and we need to obey. If we obey, he might bless us. If we disobey, he's going to curse us. That was their entire relationship with God. And that kind of continues today. I mean, Ryan talked about sort of a stale upbringing in church. A lot of that is about God is judge. All he wants is us to obey his commandments and you'll be good. You'll make it to heaven. You'll be blessed in your life. It's just this state wrote, stale wrote dead thing, right? That's the world that Jesus was born in, but Jesus brought new life. He did new things. He thought about God in a whole new way. He started a brand new movement called the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. And then he invented this thing called church that does the work of bringing heaven to earth. That's a youthful vision. But Jesus did some things that were new. He did some things that were different. And so he got harassed. In Matthew chapter nine, and we'll talk about Matthew nine throughout um, our time together. In Matthew nine, Jesus gives this very famous statement about new wine, new wineskin, old wine, old wineskin. Let's check this out. Jesus said, no one puts new wine in old wineskin. For the old skins would burst from the pressure spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine is stored in new wine skins so that both are preserved. Do you know anything about wine skins? 
<laughs> no, I, I don't either. So I got to look back into, into this whole deal. So now we have wine in bottles. Back in the day, 2,000 years ago, the time of Christ, they had wine in leather pouches. Leather pouches called wine skin. And there were two kinds of wineskin. As Jesus said, there was old wineskin and new wineskin. So uh, if you had old wineskin, which meant a leather pouch that was very old and brittle, you had to put old wine in the old wineskin. Because old wine, for lack of a better word, there's some vintners in here who are gonna have some problems with me, I'm sure. But old wine is basically dead. Basically, its fermentation process is winding down, and so it's not alive. And so it can be in hard, rigid pouches, right? Old wine, past its, at the height of its fermentation, it's in old, stale pouches. New wine is alive. New wine is alive with fermentation. So if you put new wine in old, stale, hard wineskins, they'll burst, they'll break. And so you put them in fresh wineskins, fresh leather, so that that, that leather, that wineskin can grow with the fermentation of the wine, all right? So Jesus said, it's very simple. New wine is alive. It needs an alive structure. It needs an alive system with it. So Jesus says, I'm bringing brand new ideas. I'm bringing a brand new way of thinking about God. I'm bringing a brand new mission. It is new wine. It needs to be put in new wineskins. He, he respects the old. He says, listen, everybody here is living in the old. I respect that. Old wine, old wineskins. Jesus says, my people need to think in new ways. My people need to think in fresh ways. And it's not just new and fresh ways of thinking. There's new and fresh structures, a new, a new and fresh system, a new and fresh community, right? That's got to be alive and growing and flexible. This is what Jesus came to bring. But he was confronting the old system. What I'm going to call today, get off my lawn thinking. Get off my lawn thinking. That's the system that Jesus was born and raised in, that's what he was confronting. And frankly, that's the system that ended up putting him to death. This was a serious thing. Get off my lawn thinking. Get off my lawn thinking is alive and well today as it was 2,000 years ago. And we all have to be careful of get off my lawn thinking. Here's a few things about get off my lawn thinking. First, we are good, they are bad. We are good, they are bad. That's get off my lawn thinking. That is so common in churches today. It's so common in religious thinking today. We are the good ones. They are the bad ones. Just before Jesus talked about new wine and new wineskins, Jesus was being harassed for something he was doing in a brand new way. He hung out with Matthew. You're supposed to gasp. He hung out with Matthew. Matthew was the bad one. No one liked Matthew. Matthew was a Jewish person getting paid by the Roman invaders to steal taxes from Jewish people. That is not going to go over well. He was called the traitor. No one liked Matthew except for Jesus and his buddies. Let's go to Matthew's house. Let's have a little dinner party. Let's hang out with Matthew. The old guard was saying, you know, hey, get off my lawn. Matthew's not going to be here, right? We don't want anything to do with Matthew. He's a traitor against his own people. He is dead to us. We want to be as far away from Matthew as possible. And here goes Jesus and his merry band of uh, followers going to have a dinner party at Matthew's house. Jesus says, listen, in this new way of thinking, there is no us and them. There is no arrogance that we're the good guys and they're the bad guys. We're the good people, they're the horrible people. We're the righteous ones, they're the unrighteous ones. That doesn't happen in new thinking. Matthew 9, 11, when the Pharisees saw that Jesus and his disciples were hanging out with Matthew, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? 
Now, we might not use the word scum these days, but we treat people like scum sometimes. We have to be careful of this. If we think we are better than anyone else, if we think we have more correct answers than anyone else, if we think we are more righteous than anyone else, if we think we have our doctrine all figured out and they don't, we think that we're good with God because of who we are and they're not, we are treating people like scum even though we may not use the words, they are getting the message. Old thinking treats people that way. Old thinking, get off my lawn thinking, says we are good, they are bad, we are right, they are wrong. Jesus came to bring a whole new way of life. And Jesus made this so crystal clear. Uh, Matthew 7, 1, do not judge and you will not be judged. It's pretty simple, right? Pretty simple. But I am telling you, judging is the sport of so many religious communities. I, I'm telling you most days, truly most days, not exaggerating, people by email or conversation are urging me to condemn somebody else's sin. It's like this weird obsession, condemn their sin, condemn their sin, condemn their, they're like challenging me to condemn people's sins. I'm not kidding you, this happens all the time. To which I respond, so if you're about to send me that email, I'll save you time. No problem, we can talk about the sins of others, but first we're gonna talk about your sin, and then we're gonna talk about mine, and then we'll get to theirs, I suppose. But Jesus was very clear, right? Don't talk about the speck in somebody else's eye unless you deal with a hunk and log in your own eye. So we're gonna start with ourselves first. Why don't we set an appointment? We'll talk about your sin first. You know how many times I've been taken up on that offer? Once, minus one, zero, zero times. What? We don't wanna deal with our own stuff, but Jesus said that's what it means to follow this new way to be forever young. He says, I'm gonna worry about my own trash, right? I've got my own ways to go. I've got my own pride to deal with. I've got my own arrogance. I've got my own words. I've got my own thoughts. I've got, you know, I, I haven't arrived to perfect Christ-likeness. So until I arrive at perfect Christ-likeness, I'm not going to be judging other people, right? That's a new way of thinking. That's a forever young way of thinking. Another get-off-my-lawn way of thinking is that different is a threat. Different is a threat. Again, just before Jesus is talking about new wine and new wineskins, uh, it was noted that Jesus' disciples were doing things very differently from a religious point of view. They weren't praying like everybody else was praying. They weren't giving like everybody else was giving. They weren't fasting like everybody else was fasting. Now, when everyone else fasted around the time of Christ, and by the way, uh, fasting does not mean a crash diet. It was a whole different thing in the scripture. Um, fasting was a way of either uh, showing sorrow for your own sin or showing sorrow for the sins of the world. And it was also to really give some time and space to rely on God only and not on, on food. So it was basically a time of sorrow that really clings on to God as, as provider. Now, during the time of Christ, when religious people fasted, they would make sure everybody knows they would wear old clothes, dirty clothes. Sometimes they would literally take dirt and put it on their face so they'd look all sunken and they'd walk around all feeble. Yes, I'm fasting. I took off lunch for the Lord, you know. And that's what they did. That's what religious people did. It was a big show. And Jesus made it very clear in the Sermon on the Mount that we don't do that. We don't do religion for show. We don't have to tell everybody how we pray, how we fast, what we give. It's not like that. And so people took notice. And again, in Matthew 9, they came to Jesus and asked him, why don't your disciples fast like we do and the Pharisees do? Why do you do things differently? To the old guard, to the old way of thinking, different is a threat. Because if someone does something different, it means, well, you're not complying with my tradition. 
You might be challenging my tradition, therefore you're the enemy. And that's how they treated Jesus. Such new thinking and new practices, new ways of looking at God as father, not as judge, new ways of practicing our faith, not for public show, but just as a private kind of spirit to spirit relationship with God. And the old guard didn't like it. It was new, so it was a threat. Now, I want to be clear that new doesn't always mean better. New doesn't always mean better. I dabbled in Time Magazine's 100 Worst Inventions, and here's my favorite. Franch, uh, I'm sorry, Franz Reichelt. He invented what's called the parachute jacket in 1912, and this is it. So it is a stylish piece of fashion that you can wear around town and, uh, you know, get all the looks. But it was also a parachute. If needed, if you fell off a building, it could save your life. So this is him on top of the Eiffel Tower about to test it. Didn't go well. <laughs> Did not go well. Bad idea. Just because it's new doesn't mean it's good. Um, the only worse invention to the parachute jacket is the Venetian blind sunglasses. <laughs> Bad idea. So just because it's new doesn't mean it's good. So I'm not saying that every new idea is a good idea. But if we're closed to new ways of thinking, if we're closed perhaps to ways of, of approaching God or ways of looking at the Bible, or if we're resistant to different ideas or even dialogue around how we interpret God's word, we're gonna just be this rigid, old, stale thing that doesn't bend, that doesn't grow, that isn't challenged, right? Um, my younger brother had his 50th uh, birthday celebration last night, so it pains me to say my younger brother is 50. Uh, it's only gonna get worse from here, I hear. But uh, we're having this conversation, there's a bunch of us around a table, and we started judging our conversation as to whether this is an old conversation or a young conversation. Had nothing to do with our, our message today, but we were just kind of talking about things, and, and we started laughing. Was that the conversation of an old person or a young person? Most of our conversations were conversations about old people. And I'm like, no, this can't happen. And so we try to force ourselves into younger conversations, and, and we just kind of knew 10 years from now when we're celebrating a 60th birthday, we're going to talk about our joints and our doctor's visits, and that'll be about it, right? It's like, we can't let that happen, right? We've got to be forever young. We've got to think differently. We've got to be flexible and embrace this whole journey of life and this journey of faith, right? And not to be this rigid thing and not to perceive everything that's different as a threat. When Ryan and I were talking, uh, I'm serious. This whole church experience is shaped a lot by young people. One of um, the, it's just one meeting I had with a bunch of young adults. This was probably 10 years ago and we sat right there on a Sunday. And I said, okay, listen, I, I was just kind of feeling as though things were just getting a little bit stale. And, uh, and, and I was feeling as though our young adults in particular were not uh, feeling embraced by us. And so I sat down with a whole bunch of those leaders and said, hey, listen, if I tossed you the keys to the church, what would you do? And they had a bunch of great answers and uh, just talked about what an authentic experience might be like and not something that's just pure showy and high production. But one of the things they said was a conversation, a sharing of ideas. And that has, has shaped our church going forward and continues to shape it now and will shape it in the future. Um, I won't give too many examples, but we had one, uh, this was just pre-COVID. So a couple of years ago, we had a class on, on hell. And it was presenting the four views of hell. Hell's a very controversial topic out there. I mean, wild how controversial it is. People are, again, very obsessed with that. And so it was a class on the four views of hell. There are four biblical interpretations of those words, three words that were used. 
taught by Steve Solomon, incredible teacher, incredible pastor around here, taught on the four views of hell, didn't land on any of them, and just said, hey, you figured it out. You've got the Bible, giving you a little history, go figure it out, no problem. People panicked. I mean, outright panic. Somebody tell me what to think. Somebody tell me what to... They, they felt so ungrounded because there was a conversation. It wasn't just this rigid top down. This is what we all believe, walking lockstep to an exact same thing. Like, no, there, this is an alive congregation where we're learning from each other and we're sharing and trading ideas. New is, is not always good, but new is not always bad. And we've got to be open to the new. My favorite example in the Bible of a church community embracing something new is found in Galatians, Galatians chapter six. This might sound funny to you, but the big deal, the big controversy that almost nuked the early church, almost made it extinct, was about circumcision. No kidding. That was the big debate in church. If you don't know what circumcision is, I have some pictures. No, no I don't. Um, Christianity started as a Jewish movement. It was a Jewish sect called the Way. They embraced Jesus as the promised savior. Everybody was Jewish. And because they held to the old covenant law, every male was circumcised. And then this weird thing happened out of the blue. They didn't plan on it. They didn't even want it. But people who were not Jews started following Jesus. They're like, what? This can't happen. This isn't right. God would never allow it. We are his chosen people, no one else. Non-Jews, Gentiles started receiving Jesus. Then they had this big fight. Well, they all must be circumcised. The Bible says so. It's one of the first commands in the Bible. Every male must be circumcised. And so the Jews were just following what's in God's word. Every male must be circumcised. And these Greeks were saying, I signed up to follow Jesus. I didn't sign up for that. But it's like, check you out the door surgery, at the door surgery room to the right. I mean, that's what they wanted to do. And the non-Jews were like, I don't think that's required. A big controversy. And here's the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is just like done with this. He said, I've had it with this whole conversation. Here's what he said. It doesn't matter whether we've been circumcised or not. What counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. It's about the heart. It's not about the flesh. It's about what God is doing on the inside, not what, not what we were doing on the outside. So the Apostle Paul is pleading, may God's peace and mercy be upon all who live by this principle. They are the what? new people of God. There's a whole new work that's not based on these these commands of the old covenant, these rigid commands of the old covenant 1,500 years ago, right? Something new is happening. There's this new approach to God, and it's about the heart, not about the outside. It's about following him in spirit and not obeying rigid religious laws, right? And, And so the apostle Paul had to say, enough of this stuff, right? That commandment no longer applies. End of discussion. And here's how he closes it out. From now on, don't let anyone trouble me with these things. He's done. Puts down his pen. It's over. I'm not having this conversation anymore. But still to this day, 2,000 years after the Apostle Paul wrote that, we're not arguing about circumcision, but I guarantee we're talking about a lot of old stuff around here. Old commandments, old ways of doing things. And as a result, so much of the church that follows Jesus is still shutting the door to people all over the place because we're obsessed with these old external things There's a new way of approaching God. He's a father, not a judge. New way of approaching God by grace, not by law. Let everyone come. And the apostles, Paul says, I don't even want to discuss this anymore. And I'm telling you, I'm tired of discussing it too. So the end of that, doom and gloom thinking. 
This is another way of thinking that's a get off my lawn kind of, kind of theology. This was happening again in Matthew chapter nine. Doom and gloom. These people were fasting and like everything's bad and they're looking terrible and, and they're, they're weeping and wailing and mourning. And what does Jesus say? Do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. Very Jesus way of, of doing this. These old religious people were, were saying, hey, you guys are having fun. You can't do that. You can't do it. You, you're partying in, in Matthew's house. You can't hang out with, Mar, with Matthew. And that's a whole different thing. And you're having fun. Unacceptable. And Jesus says, hey, listen, my people are celebrating with me as though it's a wedding. What is a wedding? It's a covenant between two people. Two people making a vow together to stick together for their entire life and to be one. And Jesus says, this is heaven coming to earth. This is God coming to humankind. And this is a wedding celebration. My people will celebrate. My people will celebrate. So Jesus is saying, get over this doom and gloom thing. And I'm telling you, doom and gloom can take root in our lives in this old get off my lawn kind of thinking. And some of you might have been led into some of this. So feel free to just ask yourself, is there a little bit of this in you? Is there a little bit of this in me? If we say or, or think things like, things are getting worse and worse in our culture. Have you thought that? Have you said that? Things are just getting worse and worse. These days, they just don't have the good morals and values that we did. And one of the things I love to do, I don't do this very often, because it, it is kind of judgy. <laughs> is when, when a certain generation says, oh, back in my day, there were morals and values. It's right, oh, let's look at the statistics of your day. It's just human beings are human beings. Back in my day, things were much better. We were better as a country. We were better as a people. That's just doom and gloom. You know, you celebrate the past, but eh, the future's not looking good. Saying things like, I don't know how much longer that we can go on like this. And then the mother of all doom and gloom, the end is near. The end is near. And I'm telling you, we've been doing end is near stuff for a very, very long time. Now, some of this I understand, and I'm really, I really want to be uh, sensitive and sympathetic to end is near people. The end is near movement is largely a result of the nightmare of the 20th century. The 20th century was a nightmare. World War I, uh, Great Depression, World War II, nuclear bombs, Cold War, terrorist threats. I mean, the 20th century was a nightmare, right? And so this theology became popularized, well, it's all gonna burn, right? And so this end is near fervor really started to get heightened uh, right around 60s, 70s. And of course, I was raised in that 1980s youth group. I was told in my youth group by my youth pastor, who I love very much to this very day, that there's no way Jesus will come back any later than 1988. It was 1986. And I'm thinking, I don't remember signing up for this. I like the Jesus thing. I like the idea of love and forgiveness and having a relationship with God and hanging out with these very cool people in this very cool youth group. I, seriously, I'm not going to survive <laughs> past 1988. And the way that end times thing went then, and it's still alive and well now, end times means God is going to take the holy ones and the right ones, and he is going to slaughter everyone else with a sword coming out of his mouth. I'm not kidding you. 
That's still alive and well today. You talk about doom and gloom. That is doom and gloom. And a lot of the church is still that way. Now, again, I'm sympathetic because I understand. Listen, 20th century was a mess. But we've got to kind of recapture this forever young thing and not get sucked into that kind of doom and gloom thing. Because during the time of Christ, it was doomier and gloomier. During the time of Jesus, I mean, they had roughly, Masomeno, 600 years of being invaded by Assyria, by Babylon, by um, the, uh, the, the Persians, by the Greeks, by the Romans. So they've got 600 years of conquest and, and oppression and poverty and, frankly, being victims of racism for 600 years. And then here, here comes Jesus. So it's understandable that, that they would have this kind of doom and gloom thing. We still have that today. And I'm telling you, we got to get over it. We've got to start thinking about a bright future because Jesus came to establish a bright future. Jesus came to bring the, the kingdom of heaven to earth right here and right now. And oh yeah, it also happens to last forever. Something to think about. When our nostalgia about the past is more exciting than our vision of the future, you've given up. And this, again, is not just about an age thing, but sometimes when we tend to get older, we start remembering the good days of the past and we look around and think, I don't see many good days to come. It's just normal and natural, it's human nature. But it is old and get off my lawn. We've got to recapture that, that Jesus energy and that Jesus vision that the kingdom of heaven will be established on earth. And yes, there are challenges and yes, there are setbacks. Yes, this world still is broken in so many ways, but we cannot lose heart. We cannot lose heart. We've got to think new. We have to think young. And so it's not about we are right and you are wrong, but it's about a mentality that we can learn from each other. And are we ready and able and humble enough to learn from each other? It's not about different being a threat. It's about our differences and our diversity actually being a strength. This tell you every single Sunday I'd look around and, and I'd scan the audience and are we getting more diverse or less diverse in age and ethnicity? This is, the, this is an obsession, right? It's like we, our difference is our strength. We are not this monolithic, monolithic, stale thing. We are new wine and new wineskins, learning and growing and welcoming new people and welcoming new ideas. Diversity is our strength. We're not doom and gloom people. There's an opti optimistic vision of the future. A future vision that says, if Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is coming to the earth, it's going to happen. And it's going to take a while. We've been working at it for 2,000 years, right? But I'll tell you, things are better now than they've ever been in human history. I detail that a lot. I'm getting kind of tired of detailing it. So I'm going to give it a little bit of a break. But things are going pretty well globally. The trend lines are looking good. Even as we're emerging, we pray out of COVID, right? What are we thinking about when we think about the future? Do we have a five-generation vision of the future and are we putting that five-generation vision of the future into our kids and into our grandkids? It's not easy. It's not easy to do. In fact, Jesus says it's really not easy to do. Luke chapter five, the other account of when he's talking about new wine and new wineskins. Jesus said, no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. I'm not very sophisticated in wine drinking, but I do know the older wine, there's something about it that just tastes better. We have a sommelier in this room and he could tell you why <laughs> it tastes better. But there's just something about it, it's smoother and richer, right? If you have a glass of old wine, it just tastes nice and good and smooth and rich and then you get some new swill and you're like, ah, you wanna spit it out of your mouth. 
Jesus understood the new isn't always tasting good. He knew that. And what he was saying here is that, listen, I'm bringing a new approach to God. He's a father, not a judge. I'm bringing a new sense of community. We're welcoming each other. We're hanging out with Matthew. A new sense of optimism, a new sense of wonder about the future. Jesus says, I know you're gonna to wanna to spit that out of your mouth. It's new wine, but let it grow. Let it sink in, let it set in, and let it result in this forever young new way of thinking. 